The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And today I've got legendary rocker Don Dawkin is here. He's got some great stories about Dawkins' early days, why they went to Germany to land a record deal and make a name for themselves in the early 80s, and how that then helped him in the States. He's also talking about his relationship with George Lynch, his, uh, his partner and his nemesis in a lot of ways, the fist fights they used to get into almost on a daily basis while on tour. And he remembers the Monsters of Rock tour and having to play in 100-degree heat after being blown away by Metallica back in 1988. He shares details about losing the rights to the band named Dokken, which is Don's real name, and the lawsuit surrounding that. Don's got some great Ronnie James Dio stories from the hearing aid sessions. And Don also speaks candidly about the paralysis he's trying to overcome after a botched neck surgery earlier this year that left him unable to use his right hand and arm. He can't play guitar. He can't play piano, but he's still working on new music. You're going to find out how he does that with his current band. And he played a couple of shows during the pandemic. You hear how he's doing that stuff without the use of his right hand and arm. Don Dawkin is on the way. Also talking about uh, his new record made up of early uh, songs that he's never released before from the early 80s and the mid 80s. So Don's coming to tell us all about that. And there's also a new Winnipeggers episode on its way. You can see it Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. This one's called First Time Drunk, and it's exactly what it sounds like. Me, Ribo, and Dave uh, telling the stories about the first time we got drunk. You can see that on my Facebook page and my YouTube channel. It's becoming a thing. People really get into the uh, Winnipeggers and the chemistry we have. Uh, two of my oldest friends just shooting the breeze about whatever ridiculous topics we can think of. So go check that out. And SNS, the Saturday Night Special this week, will not be happening. Uh, but I will be back to hang out with you live next Saturday, September 5th, after the AEW All Out pay-per-view featuring the Mimosa Mayhem match, uh, Jericho versus Cassidy 3. Get ready for that on the 5th of September. And then afterwards, I'll meet up with you live for the Saturday Night Special. Might be a little bit later than usual, but I'll be back live again. So uh, all of that's coming up. And also coming up, Don Dawkins making his talk as Jericho debut Thanks in part to longtime sponsor Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. It's interesting because we have a lot of mutual friends, Don Dawkins and myself. We never actually really met uh, until now uh, in the middle of a, of a pandemic. <laughs> yes, it is a pandemic. How has it been for you? I know you played a show recently, which was one of the first kind of bands to play a show, which was cool to see. How'd that go? Yeah, I think the only, we did two concerts in two days, probably the only two rock concerts in the United States. What states were they in? Uh, Virginia and Arkansas. Because we have some shows next week in um, uh, North Dakota and South Dakota. So I guess in the places where there's kind of less activity, they're starting to allow more shows now? Yeah, they were very uh, prudent. They uh, did the temperature thing with everybody coming in the park. They um, social distancing. It was about a 5,000-seater, but they only allowed 2,500 people in, and they just spread them all out over the park, all over the field. Did they keep everyone was like six feet apart and all that sort of stuff? Uh, except the front row. Right. A couple of rows were squished in. Some people weren't wearing masks. What can you do, man? Right, right. You know, I can't control that stuff. And that's the thing. I mean, I mean how long had it been since you played before that? Shit five months <laughs> it's crazy right yeah i mean we did a show in uh 
I did a show with Lynch and like uh, after my surgery, like probably February or something. That was it. I assume we'd be home all summer. So I'm a, we actually have two shows in September mm -hmm. in Texas. And we have two shows in October in Michigan and Ohio. But, you know, we had 40 shows and they're dropping like flies. They're booked, then they cancel. Right. They book, then they move it. Then they book it. We're rescheduling. So I look at my tour schedule and I go, yeah, whatever. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm not really buying into it because literally, you know, I tell my agent, I'm not booking any plane flights until these are solid. Well, and that's the thing, like with the the ones that we have, I told you for the North Dakota, South Dakota, because we had the same thing. April, May uh, got moved to July, August, got moved to uh, October, November. And the ones that we're doing is because the promoters actually kind of almost paid up front because they were really adamant. Like we are having these shows, but no one believes it. Right. Because like you said, it's it, it moves and changes and morphs. You can't control the governor. You know, if the governor says change. Look, New Mexico opened up where I am right now. Uh, a month ago, and the restaurants opened up. We've got probably one of the lowest COVID in the country. We've got like a hundred cases hmm. in the whole state. Wow! And they have an outbreak in the Navajo Nation because there's a lot of reservations here. But we don't have. We've had like ten deaths. So I figure, well, well there's no reason to shut down the whole state for ten deaths and a couple hmm. of hundred cases. But they did. They shut it down. Is this the longest that you've gone without playing in your whole career? Uh, yeah, I guess, except for the mid-90s when the grunge thing came out, you know, 92, 3, 4. Right. The Soundgarden days and Alice in Wonderland, you know, Alice in Chains and, you know, and just all those bands, you know, the whole melodic rock thing kind of petered out for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And I was fine with that. You know, I was tired anyway. I on the road for 30 years. I'm like, I'm done. Yeah. You needed a break at that point. I just wanted to go home and ride my Harley. <laughs> it's, it's interesting too. Cause you we were talking about kind of those, those old days of the past and that kind of fits in with, with your new record, uh, with the lost songs record. Did, did you find a bunch of tapes in your garage or something like that? Or how did it work? Well, yeah, I think everybody in the country probably thought, okay, I'm homebound. I can't go anywhere. There's no restaurants. Nothing's open. Time to do some spring cleaning. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. That stuff had been in my garage and my storage lockers for, I don't know, like 20 years. It kind of pissed me off because I did the math. I figured what I spent in storage was like over 20 years was like $20,000. And I found it. I found about 500 bucks worth of stuff that was good. <laughs> I should have thrown it out. You know, it's just junk. Broken Marshall cabinets, no wheels, reverb units with knobs missing old cables that are antiquated, uh, you know, an old uh, PC computer from you know, like the 1800s. And <laughs> I just threw it all out. So, but I started going through all these pictures and a lot of memorabilia and kind of organized that. And then I found this tub with all these two inch reel reel tapes, which I was shocked because, you know, I haven't recorded on two inch reels of tape in 20 years. Mm -hmm. It's all digital. And I went digital. I go reels of tape the hell is this because i thought i'd given all my i had all my tapes i had the whole dock and catalog stored at a place called iron mountain which is temperature controlled fire sprinklers and all that jazz mm -hmm. and uh I all back to warner brothers i said well i don't own these tapes you own them so why am i paying the storage fees so you know like i told him come get your stuff you know it was costing a fortune so uh, apparently these just went ended up in my garage somehow and I didn't think they'd play because, you know, tapes, after about 20 years, they just kind of decompose. Yeah. They don't play anymore. You can't just put a tape on after 20 years. It's too gummy and too gooey and it just sticks to the head. So you have to literally take the reel of tape and you put it in a convection of it. And you bake it for about two and a half hours at a certain temperature and you bake the tape. And then at best, you might get two passes. Really? And then it'll just shred mm -hmm. so i pat i went i go let's write the first time we put the reel up we plug this straight to a hard drive all 32 tracks and push the button and say go but uh, some of the songs didn't make it mm -hmm. there was about four songs toward the end of the reel that just, they just fell it they just wouldn't play it just sounded all garbled and distorted they were just done so i saved four songs 
So, but that was enough to create a whole new record just off those four old songs? Well, no, there was other demos I had floating around that never been released that I wrote. You know, when we worked with Michael Wagner in Hamburg, we did about six or seven demos, but uh, they were just lost. They were just two tracks, and I literally had to go on a hunt and like talk to people I'd known from the 70s and 80s and go, do you have any copies of those old songs or... You have a copy of my first record, which was a 45, mm-hmm. and nobody had it. I only made 300 of them. But just by luck, I was doing an interview with a guy in Sweden talking about this record, and I was still working on it. And he goes, yeah, I have a copy of your original 45 you did in 78. And I went, you're shitting me, right? <laughs> he goes, no, I got it. He goes, my brother saw you in Berlin in 79, and he bought a couple copies, and he gave me one. I'm sure I have one of my files. I said, man, if you could find that, that'd be a godsend because I don't have a copy of it. Mm-hmm. And there were some of the songs on YouTube. I don't know how they got them. All my demos, a lot of stuff I did back in the day, outtakes of other docking records were on YouTube, but they sounded terrible. Mm-hmm. They just sounded horrible. And I, it wasn't good enough to put on the record, let's put it that way. So I just kept hunting them down. And then I called Juan Crucier who uh, did my first tour in 79. He was playing bass for me. And I said, do you have any of those old demos we did in Germany? So I went back to Germany twice, 79 and 80. And he goes, yeah, I I got them somewhere. So he hunted down a couple songs, good copies, you know. Mm -hmm. So we just started hunting things down. All I could do on some of the songs, there were two tracks, is just remaster and make them sound as good as possible. Things were different in the 70s, you know. We didn't, things were different. (laughs) Sure. So, so the, the the vocals on these tunes are they your original vocals from the seventies, or did you have to? Oh yeah, it's all original. It's full. I kept the vocals. I kept my guitar playing. I kept my solos, except on three songs that weren't done. And then John Levin finished those solos. You know, I would have done it, but you know, I don't know if you know, but I, my hands paralyzed. So. I heard that. Yeah, here it is. This looks like this. So. And that's from you had surgery, and that was kind of an yeah, after effect of my it? My fingers are all bent, and this is as far as I can move my hand. Wow. Seven months, that's all I got. And my thumb doesn't move at all. Yeah, it sucks. I had spinal surgery on my neck, and uh, something went wrong. Mm-hmm. I, drew the stro- I drew the short straw. My whole arm, my whole arm's gone, you know. The tri- and my triceps are like jello, mm-hmm. you know. Even if I lift weights. On my right arm, there's just all the nerves are cut. They said it could come back in a year, a year and a half. We'll see. Yeah. It's been seven months, but this is all the progress I've got after all the therapy. So it's a little depressing. You know, I can't ride my bike. Can't write my name. Can't hold a fork. I'm right-handed, you know. Can't play guitar. Can't play piano. It sucks. Can't even go out in the yard and work. You know, I can't even rake, you know. So it's been kind of a drag. Yeah. But, you know, things happen in life and I just have to roll with it. And, uh, if it doesn't come back, there's some options they can do like tendon transplants and things like that. So mm. I'll worry about that, you know, in seven months. Right, right, right. Yeah. Especially if it's, you know, a lifelong guitar player, musician, this is what you, it's <laughs> what you do for a living, right? The joke was, I remember I was going to surgery at Cedar sinai I told the doctor, Right when he's putting me out, I said, dude, just do me a favor. Don't paralyze me, all right? It's exactly what I said to him. Just don't paralyze me, all right? Mm-hmm. And he paralyzed me. Jeez, Jeez. Bastard. Jeez. I won't say his name yet, but uh, if this doesn't get better, I'm, I'm going to try to get him disbarred. Well, it would seem that there would be a big lawsuit there, too, as well, Don. Huge. Yeah. I said, you know, dude, if you would have, he's like, all he said was, gee, I'm really sorry. Jeez. That's it. I'm really sorry, man. Everything looks perfect on your MRI. I've got 13 screws, two plates in my spine, a lot of, a lot of hardware. And I said, man, if you would have done this to Yo-Yo Ma, we couldn't hold his bow anymore. I said, your name would be Mud. Nobody would go to you. You'd probably get disbarred. Mm-hmm. You would have done this to someone like Yo-Yo Ma or some famous concert pianist. Your career would be over, dude. And, uh, you know, it was a threat, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, I'm not Yo-Yo Ma, but, you know, so I'm just doing the best I can. Thank God when I wrote Broken Bones over four years ago, 
we had about seven or eight songs left over, like I always do. Mm -hmm. So I was still playing guitar then. So I got a hold of John Levin, my guitar player, who's been in the band over 20 years now. And I said, let's just go through everything we wrote, all the stuff we didn't use, see if we can find a verse or a bridge or maybe a cool chorus. And we'll just take it from there and and, and finish these songs. Mm -hmm. So I got lucky in that aspect that we overwrote for the last album. I usually do. You get, you know, you get 12 songs on a record. I usually write 16 or 17 songs and pick the best. Right. Sure. And not everything, you know, you know how it is. You're right. You play in a band, you yep. know, you, you write a song, you're like, man, this is awesome. You know, and then you get it done, you work on it, work on it, you go, well, maybe it's not so awesome. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is going to be the first single for the record. Then it doesn't even end up on it after a while. Yeah. You work, you bust your ass on it. And at the end of the day, you go, Eh, maybe maybe not and they just go by the way Mm -hmm. and then sometimes the dogs you know turn out to be great yeah once everything is mixed and mastered and all put together and the sauce is on it those are the growers for sure your music's more metal right yeah it's 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 melodic though you know if 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 journey and metallica had a baby with little acdc thrown in there that sort of a thing yeah good The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Let's talk a little bit about, but you mentioned Germany. Why was Germany so big for you early in your career uh, when you kind of grew up in, in, you know, or were playing in California at the time? You know, honestly, the whole thing, someday I'll write my autobiography. There's been so much written, unauthorized biographies on us, and the information is so screwy in those things. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, all these videos about L.A. was the scene, the Sunset Strip, you know, everybody was on the strip playing, you know, and Van Halen and Quiet Riot and blah, 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 and Poison. And that wasn't true. Not in 79. Right, right. You know, in 70 and 79, when I'm in my early 20s, we were playing the whiskey with, you know, Van Halen a lot. I think Van Halen got the record deal in 78, and then they took off. But then the new wave thing came in for a couple of years. Hmm. And you had the My Sharonas and the, and then punks stuff, the Dickies and Black Flag, that all got popular. So 79 to like 81, right before MTV, you know, on the strip, it was just punk and people and Devo kind of and Blondie. And, you know, that was what was going on on the radio. And that's what the clubs were booking. And all of a sudden, we were out. We were like out of fashion. So I, I couldn't play. But I met this guy by a fluke, I uh, was playing at a club in the Valley and he, and I met him. His name was Michael Boyens. And he said, I own the biggest club in Hamburg. <laughs> and he said, you should come over to Germany because the music you're playing, you know, why new wave was happening in LA. I'm listening to Scorpions and Accept and uh, Saxon. And that was all happening in Europe, mm-hmm. but it hadn't hit. America yet. Even in 79, I think I saw score. I think I saw Judas Priest play at the Whiskey. Wow. They just weren't, they weren't famous here yet, you know? Yeah. They'd only done one record, Sad Wings of Destiny, and uh, I saw Saxon in LA, and, you know, bands like Wine Teeth in the Bay Area, they were doing well. But really, the I think everybody thought when Van Halen got signed that everybody was going to get signed. Mm-hmm. And L.A. did have seven record companies within a mile of each other. On Sunset Strip, you had Columbia, Atlantic, Electra, all in one building. You had Geffen Records across the street. You had A&M a mile down the road. I mean, it was the place you'd want to be because the the, uh, killer dogs, um, (laughs) because the A&R man would come to the clubs. Come here, Cody. 
He's happy to hurt somebody come home. <laughs> my big doodle. He's not feeling too good. I got four big ass dogs. Do you? Oh yeah, they're all huge. I got five. <laughs> not you all big five? ones, though. I got but not all big ones, but I got two little ones and three big ones. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, they're all shepherds and one golden doodle, but they're all like, you know, ninety pounds, hundred pounds. We have a doodle also. Oh, you do? Yeah. Yeah. Is it a full size? It's a labradoodle. Yeah, I have a golden doodle. Yeah, so it's full. He's he's still a puppy, but he's growing. Oh, he is. Yeah, he's uh, where's? Hey, Cody, <laughs> give me a Cody. <laughs> uh, he's he's not so. Around. So you're talking about the, all the record companies being in the same area with all the AR NR guys going to the clubs. Yeah, I mean, you know, they go out the weekends. They send out their apprentices, you know, and they would club hop. And if they liked a band, they get a demo. They take it back to the record company and they play for the A&R guys. That's how it worked. Mm -hmm. So, and I gave it a shot. You know, I went to every label in town, you know, and we got close a couple times. We got real close because my first record was a 45 and it was produced by Drake Levin, who was the original guitar player in a band called Paul Revere and the Raiders. Mm. And they were pretty famous in the sixties. Mm-hmm. And they wore like, uh, you know, the, the, the yeah. colonial outfits. Yeah. They wore the outfits and all that, the red, you know, the red coat stuff. But Drake was a guitar player. They had a lot of hits like kicks and mm-hmm. Navajo nation reservation, reservation, something. And, but the singer in the part of the Raiders was the lead singer in Parvier and the Raiders. So he had a connection there. And he was the president. So I thought, this is a no-brainer, man. Mm-hmm. I'll have Drake produce the record, and then he'll take it to uh, his singer, who's now the president, and maybe I'll get a record deal. But uh, we came close, but we didn't make it. And then I got a deal on Electra twice. They signed us and dropped us, signed us and dropped us, <laughs> because the presidents kept changing. First right. it was Joe Smith, he gave me a deal. Then he left. And then... Somebody else came in, Tom Worman, for a while, and then he left. And I was getting really frustrated, so I went to Germany. And then finally, I got to get my record deal in Germany, you know, thanks to the manager and except Gabi Hauke, who's still the manager. She took my demos to Hamburg and came back and handed me a plane ticket hmm. and said, go to Hamburg. And I said, well, how much do you think I can get? And she's like, I'd tell him... 10,000 marks. And I'm like, okay, that sounds good. Which was like (laughs) (laughs) $7,000. And she goes, no, no, no. Ask him for 15,000 marks. That's (laughs) $10,000. Which I laugh now when we were getting our million dollar deals down the road, you know? Sure. So I signed the first record for 10 grand. And that was, come here, Cody. Come here, Mr. Doodle. This is my doodle. Come here, buddy. Oh, he's like, oh, I'm too big. Can you see him? Yeah. <laughs> he's a good boy. He just got back home yesterday from the vet, so he's a little groggy. Okay. <laughs> he's been doing a weird coughing, hacking thing. Allergies, maybe. When you uh, when you recorded that first record, um, was that in Germany? Yeah. Well, the second tour I did in Germany, I had like a road manager because I didn't speak German. Nobody spoke German. We're driving all over Germany. We don't know where in the hell we're going, you know. Everything is Ustaffisch and Ausfisch and Eastleisen, and I don't know what they're doing, you know. So we had this kid, and this kid, uh, his name was Nico LaFrance. I guess he had come to America with the Scorpions' first tour because he spoke perfect English. Mm-hmm. So he knew the Scorpions, and he knew the producer, Dieter Dirks. So um, he got Dieter to come see us play on our second tour and down the Reeperbahn. If you've ever been in Germany, you know mm-hmm. what the Reeperbahn is. I used to live on the Reeperbahn. Oh, my God. <laughs> Red Light District. Yes, sir. <laughs> the Eero Center and all those crazy clubs. Mm-hmm. A lot of weird stuff going on, on that street. So he came and saw us at a place called the Big Apple. And Dieter said, honestly, he said, I don't really like your band. He goes, I'm like, okay, well, at least you came and saw us. And he goes, but I like you as a guitar player and a singer, and I'm doing a new Scorpions record, and Klaus just had some vocal surgery, and I'm looking for somebody that has vibrato, like I do. 
Black people don't have vibrato. And he said, I'm looking for somebody who sings like Klaus, and you sound like Klaus. And I'm looking for somebody to do all the high stuff, the very, very, very high stuff, so Klaus could save his voice on the background vocals. And then I found out why, because Dieter makes you sing everything 25 times. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was, he's fully German. <laughs> it was very good, Don. It was almost perfect. 99.9. Now just give me 100. I'm like, please, Louise. You know, they hadn't invented auto-tune yet. Right. <laughs> there was no auto-tune back then. You either got it or you did it again. Mm-hmm. So uh, I sang some background vocals on the Scorpions album. And I got the deal, and so I felt, you know, I'll do the album of Dieters. And that's what I did, you know. So uh, I was in Germany for several months, and the album came out. You know, it's funny, uh, the trivia, when the first break in the chains came out, it said Don Dockin on it, mm-hmm. not Dockin. Because Lynch and Mick I hired from L.A. to go to Germany, but they weren't in the band. I just, I just hired them to play on the record. You know, because Juan had left to go with Rat. So I go, well, I got a record deal. I got a studio. And I don't have a band. (laughs) Great. (laughs) So George and Mick came over, cut the tracks, and they went home. The album came out. It was called Don Doc, and it was a solo deal. And lo and behold, it ended up selling like 30,000 copies, which was good for Germany. So that kind of gave me a, a bump start. And then we landed this show called the b club the record company carrera pulled some strings the b club was kind of like the first mtv of germany acdc judas priest everybody played the b club it was the only rock show an hour-long concert in germany everybody watched it and he got us on that and that really helped my career the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards the longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards why bring this up because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70 yard field goal it probably won't go well so set a limit when you gamble and stick to it want more helpful tips like this go to keepitfunohio.com for games quizzes and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand It's interesting because the first time I saw Dawkins live was with Kiss on the Animalized tour. I'm from Winnipeg mm-hmm. up in Canada. And I remember the first album or one of the albums had a sticker on it and it said Dawkins rhymes with rockin'. Right. A lot of people didn't know how to pronounce the name Dokin or something along those lines. They'd say Dokin, yeah. Was that, was that something you had to deal with quite a bit when you first kind of got on the scene? It's Dawkins. Yeah. They go, yeah, we're going to see Dokin. I'm like, there's no umlauts over the O. You must have got an F in English. So they came up with the Rockin, R-O-K-K-E-N. Yeah. So people don't understand my name. And then, of course, because the record came out in Germany first, and Dokin, they assumed I was German. <laughs> and I'm not. I'm Norwegian, half Norwegian and half, half Cherokee Indian. So or 33% Indian. And I'm mostly Norwegian, so... It was all just confusing, you know. No, you're from Germany. No, I made the record in Germany, but I'm not German. <laughs> and so at all these years and years, there was a lot of confusion because when the album came out in America, it said import, you know. And <laughs> so it was a little confusing. Yeah, they came up with the rockin' with Dawkins thing. It's a great rock and roll name. It's like Van Halen, Dawkins. Like you were born with a great band name. Yeah, I got lucky. I was lucky that my name wasn't like Schmitzelgruber or something. <laughs> was that your first uh, major tour with Kiss in 84? No, man, we were deep by then. We'd done our, my first tour was with Loyster Cole. Mm. And that was right 82 when Breaking the Chains came out in America. And it was Loyster Cole, YNT, and we were at the bottom. We only had like a 30 minute set. Mm. That was my first tour, was Loyster Cole. And then we worked our way back across the states playing clubs. The album didn't sell that well, maybe 100,000 copies. The label wanted to drop us. I begged on my hands and knees, give us another chance. And that's why I called the next album Tooth and Nail. George quit. Well, he was quitting every week. He's in, he's out, he's in, he's out, he's in, he's out. So it was just Mick and I living in an apartment. And uh, they said, we'll give you one more shot. 
And um, I said, okay, this is it, boys. We better come up with a good record. <laughs> we're all going to be, we're screwed, you know. So we did Tooth and Nail, and I picked up a really heavyweight manager, which helped a lot, Cliff Bernstein and Peter Manch, Q Prime. They're like the biggest management company in the world. Of course, yeah. So when, when Q Prime picked us up, they could just pick up the phone. I can get any tour I wanted. <laughs> so our next tour was with Dio, last in line. And then it just took off after that. That second year we did Dio, Sammy Hager, Nugent, Triumph. Wow. We did all in 12 months. We just went from tour to tour to tour. Twisted Sister. We just went tour to tour to tour to tour to tour to tour. And we stayed out for about, you know, 15 months until we just fell down. <laughs> but the Tooth and Nail record is a classic record. I mean, every song on it is is good to great. Uh, so you definitely came up with the goods for that. Yeah, we got three hits off of it. Mm -hmm. Lucky Hunter, Alone Again. Alone Again was another song that I wrote in probably 75 or 6 when I was like, I don't know, 23 or 4. I was a kid. And uh, Tooth and Nail was finished. And all of a sudden, all these bands on MTV, Skid Row, even my, they're doing ballads. Mm -hmm. Everybody's putting out their ballad. Yeah. You know, 18 in life and you name it. Everybody had a ballad out on MTV. We didn't have any ballads for Tooth and Nail. It was all rock songs. I was like, oh, shit. So the record company goes, look, you've got to come up with a ballad like right now. <laughs> and I started digging through my tapes as usual. And I found Alone Again on a cassette. And uh, Jeff and I went in and we recorded it. We redid it. How integral was, was Jeff Pilsen's, uh to Dawkins' success? Well, Jeff is like an anomaly. You know, he's a great guitar player, a great singer, great bass player, great pianist. He's really good at engineering. I mean, he's a jack of all trades. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I guess you could say he was the referee between me and George. Lukewarm water. <laughs> Trying to keep the peace. Yeah. You know, between George and I, because you have two alpha males, too much testosterone. And uh, that's, you know, George and I never got along since the day he joined the band. Hmm. It was like that the whole time. The only reason we get along now, we're too old to get in a fight. So, <laughs> so but Jeff would, you know, kind of try to ride, you know, talk to me. And then he would talk to George and, you know, and Nick was just like, uh, I don't know. I just got my Jack and Coke, man. I'm staying out of this, you know. <laughs> But Jeff was integral. I mean, as a writer, I honestly don't know what his contribution was that much. Gotcha. Because I never honestly wrote hardly any songs with the other three of them in Dawkins. I wrote my stuff by myself. Mm -hmm. I like to just hole up with my little Tascam. Remember the little Tascam four tracks? Mm -hmm. We had four tracks. You could do four tracks, bounce it to another cassette, send it back. That opened up two tracks. Now you had six tracks and a lot of hiss. And that's how I made my demos. And Jeff and George and Mick were working together with their at their little portable eight-track studio. Gotcha. So what they did, I don't know. I wasn't involved. They, they, they would write a song, and then if they, they'd send it to me, and I'd write lyrics. Or I'd write music and lyrics. Like, in my dreams, I wrote in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. In 20 minutes, you know, the fire I wrote at a friend's house with some girl drinking wine in front of a fire. So that's the way we, we had a strange writing dynamic. So I can't even, I don't even know who wrote on their side. The three of them, I assume. When you're talking with, about the dynamic that you had with George, was it hard being in such a big band, but always being kind of on the edge of, is he's going to quit or we're going to get into a fight? Or was that kind of part of what made you guys click in, in a way? No, everybody said that. Everybody says, oh, it's because the tension oh, yeah, yeah. between George and I, and we were competitive, so we were trying to outright each other in the songs, and that really wasn't the case, you know. We just didn't get along, you know. I mean, we're just different people. And he always wanted, saw us as more of a metal band. And I said, I don't have the voice for it, George. You know, I don't have a... I don't sing like James Hetfield. I just can't do it. I don't, I sing, I'm a melodic singer. 
So it was always that fight to make it heavy. You know, when I'm listening to Def Leppard, he's listening to Monster Magnet. Gotcha. So he was going that way and I'm going this way. And Jor and Jeff actually came from a very pop background, Beatles and stuff like that, you know. Well, we all loved the Beatles. You know, we were all into the Beatles. We listened to the Beatles on the bus. That was one of our common Mick and Jeff and I, we'd sit on the bus and play Beatles songs and, and practice the harmonies and stuff. So yeah, I don't think it was because of the tension. It's just two alpha males, that's all. Right. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. about the uh the monsters of rock tour and how huge that was it's a stadium rock and roll tour you know 1988 it's probably the the first of its kind for that genre of music obviously the stones were in stadiums at that point but i don't want to call yeah. a lot of other you know metal bands so to speak playing stadium shows it was scary mm. and you know i mean it's it was the pinnacle of our career i left the band on the last show of that tour I couldn't take it anymore, the the fighting and the drugs. The drugs got really bad that last tour. I mean, there was so much cocaine flying around. And it was really never my drug, it wasn't my drug of choice. I was more of a red wine guy. <laughs> and uh, so everybody was pretty gonzo. But, you know, the Scorpions hadn't toured in several years. I don't think Ben Halen hadn't toured in several years. Metallica hadn't toured in several years. And we've been on tour for 14 months already. <laughs> we were done. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're burned out. Everybody's cooked. Too much drinking, drugs, excess, craziness. And then we get the offer to go do the Monster Rock Tour. And we literally had, I'd say, about two weeks to get ready. And I remember I went to Tahiti and just sat on a beach and just stared at the water. Because <laughs> I was just burned out. And uh, we did the tour, but, you know, um, it's pretty hard when Metallica opens up for you. Yeah, they were on right before you, weren't they, right? And I even told my manager, who also he managed Metallica and still does, I said, you know, I know we're making more money than Metallica, you know, on the tier, but can you put them on after us? <laughs> I really wanted them to go on after us. I mean, how do I go out there and sing Just Got Lucky after they just sang Kill Them All? Mm -hmm. It's a whole different trip, you know. The Scorpions are melodic and Van Halen was melodic, but Metallica was out for blood. And I gained a lot of respect for them because they really had this attitude like every show is our last show. Even though it was 104 degrees in Dallas, Texas, and they went on stage at 3 o'clock with the sun on their face. <laughs> I mean, it was hell. People are passing out. You see 100,000 people, and you can look out there, and you see people just fall down, fall <laughs> down. And they pick up their bodies, and they pass the body over the audience and, like, just take the body and send them to these. Um, they had these big cement pipes about every 100 yards with a guy in it with water and oxygen, and they send these bodies into these cement pipes, and, put them in there and the guy give them oxygen and water. And it was pretty crazy, man. And the girls in the front would all try to go to the front. And then when Metallica went on stage, all the dudes rushed the front stage and all these girls are decked to the nine yards and they got squished and there's no air and there's no oxygen and they're passing out right in front of us and they pull them over the fence. But when they pull them over, you know, so tight, their skirt would come off, their jeans would come off, their top would come off. They're half naked by the time they got over the fence. And the triage was under the stage. And we had a graded stage. Uh, ben Halen didn't want to see any monitors. So everything was hidden underneath the stage. And I could be singing, looking down through the grates and see all these chicks lined up, <laughs> half-dressed, 
you know, like bodies because they pull their tops off and their clothes would come off. They're missing one shoe. And I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> it looked like a war zone, man. They were, it was hot. It was like we did all of Texas and New Mexico, places like that in like July. Would you uh, hang out with the other guys in the bands at all? Yeah. I mean, it was a good thing. Well, I'd known Van Halen since the club days. Mm-hmm. And Eddie and I would, you know, hang out after the, the show. And In fact, we'd even go back to the hotel sometime. And we're all staying at the same hotel. It was pretty hard to hide the fact you got eight tour buses in a parking <laughs> lot. So everybody knows all the bands are staying there. <laughs> and we would go into these bars and there'd be a band playing, like a little, little four-piece. And we'd just go over there and take over. You know, Eddie would just walk up there, go, Gabe, hey, give me your guitar. <laughs> I go, like, hey, give me that mic. You know, and the Scorpions bass player would jump on bass. And Herman Rarebell from the Scorpions would jump on the drums. And we'd just kind of take over the band and start jamming. <laughs> and, everybody went, and everybody went crazy, you know, because we were just having fun, you know. And weren't really playing our hits. We are playing blues and Hendrix and just fun stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. That's what we did. And I felt I, I feel bad afterwards. These guys were like, who are these guys? You know, <laughs> it wasn't like we asked them if we could play. We just kind of went up there and took over. Told them. <laughs> we told them, yeah. But it was pretty crazy there because, hey, look, I'll be honest. I mean, there was just an insane amount of beautiful women. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was crazy. It wasn't just like a lot of girls. It was like if you weren't like a penthouse pet or a playboy bunny or a, a, a runway model, you weren't getting backstage because the road crew would, you know, pick and choose and they go, ah, she's a nine. There's a 10 over. Try to get the 10. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, but then the monsters of rock, we had to shut that down because things changed. The scorpions had their wives out mm. and he was married to Valerie Bertinelli at the time. They got a little baby you know, I had a I had a two year old by then, no, a one year old. So all of a sudden, you got kids, wives, relatives. <laughs> so the whole party thing kind of kind of got the kibosh put on it. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's like, look, if you guys are going to be misbehave and terrorize, you got to keep it on the bus. You know. Mm. When you mentioned Metallica, because that was kind of right as they were starting to blow up. Did you feel like this is the next big band and, and bands like Dawkins or, or, or Scorpions were kind of in for a fight when you get this heavier type of music coming in? You know, it's interesting that the night that my manager, Cliff Bernstein, signed them as a manager, they were playing the Troubadour. And I went with them because he had already signed Dawkins. Mm-hmm. So Cliff says, I'm going to go see this band called Metallica. And you want to go with me? I said, yeah, I'll pick you up at the Sunset Marquee and we'll cruise on over there. Because he wasn't driving. He didn't have a car. I said, all right. So I remember, and I'll be honest, I went in, saw Metallica play, got it. But at that time, Cliff had Def Leppard and Dawkins and Tesla and Queensryche. And I didn't get it. I was like, because he was like really excited. Cliff's like, Don, these guys are going to be huge. You know, this is this is it. This is the next big thing. And I'm like, really? I don't, I don't see it. You know, I didn't see it. I think they'd only put out Ride the Lightning then. They hadn't even done Injustice for All, because that album came out on Monsters. So they only had the EP, I think, at the time. Mm-hmm. I know Michael Wagner, who I brought over from Germany, remixed the song, the single off Ride the Lightning. So... My headset was in big harmonies, big production, burning guitar solos, you know, big production, you know, like Def Leppard's Pyromania had gone through the roof and sold 10 million and Journey and all these bands had these huge hits. So I didn't really understand where Metallica was coming from. I mean, I got it, you know, because there's a lot of metal bands. I think even Dave Mustaine might have still been in the band at the time. But Cliff was really excited about Metallica. And I remember he told me that in four years, these guys 
arguably the biggest band in the world. Hmm. And I didn't believe it. I just didn't. Hmm. You know, I just didn't get it. But then, you know, you fast forward a couple of years and I'm on Monsters of Rock. I got it. When I saw the audience response and the fists in the air and saw how aggressive they were and how intense they were, then it finally hit me over the head what Cliff saw. But it took me a couple of years to really get it. Mm-hmm. I was still into, you know, melodic rock. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. When you said you left the band on the last day of the Monsters of Rock tour, that's like you said, docking at its peak. It's it's very uh, unbelievable that you, you you walked away from the band where you when you were at the biggest point in your career. Yeah, it was horrible. I mean, who puts their own band? <laughs> yeah, right. and I didn't want to. Obviously, we were, you know, Cliff had told us, "Look, you get through Monsters of Rock," and I think he said the plan was we're going to make another record do a world tour, headline arenas, and he had a whole plan. Cliff was always like planning two years ahead. Mm-hmm. And he had a plan for us. And that was where the next album was going to be, you know, tour the world, go to Europe. We were huge in Japan, sell out arenas. All we need to do is come up with a great record, a couple of hits. I left the band because I couldn't take it anymore. I mean, I was, I was having a nervous breakdown, you know. I mean, George and I were getting in fistfights like every other day, you know? Like literal fistfights. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, he jumped me once in a limo and was like trying to choke me out in a limo, you know? <laughs> and he almost, and he, you know, remember he was really buffed. Yeah. George got pretty ripped up there he for did. a while. He did. <laughs> he started to look like, uh, I don't know, he was, he was pretty ripped. He started looking like that guitar player that used to be in Alice Cooper. <laughs> Ken Roberts. Ken <laughs> Roberts, yeah. And, in a, and to me, it affected his playing. Because he'd be, he'd be lifting actually before he went on stage. And when you're lifting, you know, your arms get tight and you're not as liquid and fluid. But, uh, you know, when you're, you know, lifting and you're doing steroids and, you know, your emotions are running high and you get the roid rage and all that jazz, you know, it causes trouble. You know, it causes problems. And, uh, hey, you wrestled. You know the deal. Yep. Exactly. You did, Roy. I'm just saying it's rampant. Sure it is, yeah. So it caused a lot of problems. I mean, George hasn't done that in ages. He gave Mm -hmm. that up. So, yeah, did I want – I wasn't planning on leaving the band. I just had a meeting after that show in Colorado with Cliff, the record company president, and I said, look, I can't do this anymore. You know, I want to make music. I want to be happy. I want to get along. I go – Every day, there's just fighting and arguing and complaining about stupid things about, I want my own dressing room, and I don't like the food, and I don't like this, and I don't like that. And I'm like, hey, man, we're on a stadium tour. Be happy. Be be grateful. It took us a long time to get here. It was my dream come true. And I'm like, so it drove me, it it wore me down. And uh, so I told the band, I can't play with George anymore. I'll stay with Jeff and Mick and we'll have to get another guitar player because I can't go on like this. Mm -hmm. And they decided uh, to stick it out with George and Jeff was going to be the singer. Really? Yeah. They were going to go out. Jeff was going to, because Jeff always wanted to be lead singer. Mm -hmm. That's his dream. I mean, he's still a bass. He's just playing bass and corner, but he did a couple albums as a lead singer uh, after Dawkins, but but I never dreamed in my wildest dreams that when I left and went to Geffen Records, all of a sudden I got served with a lawsuit saying I couldn't use the name Dawkins anymore. That's your name. And I went, that, but that's my name. It's not like Nikki Six or Tommy Lee or Vince, you know, this, that's my real name. 
And I said, well, why don't you just sue my grandfather or my great grandfather? <laughs> so I wasn't real worried about it. That's maybe why I lost the case. I thought it was stupid. You can't take someone's name away. But we were a partnership, incorporated, four-way split. I didn't keep that extra 1%. It wasn't like other bands that owned everything because they were smarter than I me. So they basically, uh, like, it was like Coca-Cola. You know, you got four people that own the name Coca-Cola. One guy leaves, the other three guys get the name Coca-Cola. And that's what happened with Doc. And they got, but then the judge at the last second said, you can't use the name, Don, and you three, they're going to try to go out as Doc. And, and they had already field tested it, and everybody said, we're not interested. You know, if Don's not in the band, we don't give a well, shit. Yeah, how could it be docking without you in the band, no matter who's so, in the That didn't work out. So, of course, George did Lynch Mob. Jeff did, I think, War and Peace. Then he did another album called Flesh and Blood. And it just didn't, nobody won. We all lost. Mm-hmm. We all lost. And then again, the, the grunge thing came out. And that was in 91 when my album came out as Don Dockin. And I was really proud of that record. I had an all-star lineup. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Peter Baltus from Except on Bass, Mickey D, he was in Scorpions now, was on Motorhead for 20 years. He was on drums. I had John Norum from Europe on guitar, a total shredder. I had this young kid named Billy White from a band from Watchtower from Austin, Texas, that Lars Ulrich turned me on to. Mm. Lars goes, dude, you got to check out this 17-year-old kid. And I was like, holy shit, this guy's amazing. So I was trying to decide between John Norum and Billy White and I said, what the hell? I'll take them both. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a really good band, you know. Yeah. We did well. We sold out two and 3,000 seaters and did a big tour and sold out Japan. And But then when that grunge thing, when MTV stopped playing us, except on, what was it, uh, Ricky Rockets had yeah, a show. Headbangers Ball. Headbangers Ball. And that's where you could see Poison and Slaughter and all that. And then it seemed like something got weird that we started getting lumped into the hairband category. Dawkins, hairband. Why? Because we had long hair? Mm-hmm. I mean, if anybody listens to our records, yeah, we got In My Dreams. It's it's commercial. We got Alone Again, a ballad. But we also had The Kiss of Death. Mm-hmm. We had Tooth and Nail. We had Lightning Strikes Again. And we had dark songs like Heaven Comes Down. Yeah. We were kind of a schizophrenic band, you know? We had the dark stuff, because I'm a dark writer, too. I don't just write pop songs. So, but somehow it seemed like we kind of got folded in to the Headbangers Ball because they play Poison and then they play Winger and then they play Dokken and then they play another pop band. So we kind of got lumped into that whole thing. Mm-hmm. But the hardcore fans knew what we were all about. I saw your uh, the the Don Dokken band with with, um, cool. with Norman. I'm, I'm not leaving. It. Yeah, I saw you guys in uh, in Calgary. You had opened for Poison was the tour no it was great it, it was funny because it was supposed to be uh warrant and then you guys got added last minute and it was right. it was great i remember i saw peter afterwards in a bar and i saw mickey d and i was all excited it's done talking here you know total fanboy questions you know but uh, I mean, yeah. it was a great it was a great lineup mm-hmm. you know when you got peter balthus who i really do consider one of the best bass players in the world he's just so solid then I got Mickey D. I mean, yeah. I had the ultimate rhythm section. Yeah, totally, totally. And having two shredding guitar players to try to counteract the legend of George, I thought, well, I got two shredders, so I should be all right. Mm-hmm. So it was a really great band, and everybody sang. John sang, Peter sang, Billy sang, so we had great harmonies. And uh, it was very sad that we did really well. The album almost went gold. But I was on Geffen by then, and it's kind of like the old joke in the movies, like you, you walk into the record company, you know, every day, and whatever band's coming out right then, they got your posters all over in the walls and shit, <laughs> Don Dockin' up from the ashes. And then I come in there a couple months later, and there's no, it said Nirvana mm-hmm. and Guns N' Roses, because they also had Nirvana and Guns N' Roses. That's right. And I'm like, well, where's my Don Dockin' poster? <laughs> you know? I remember I called David once, poor David Geffen, you know, I should have been, this guy's a billionaire, busy man, 
getting ready to start a movie company. And, you know, I, I call him up for something stupid and he, but he'd take my call, which I respected him for. And, but it was always like, what's wrong now, Don? <laughs> like, there's no posters over at Tower Records. They only got a couple. I'm calling him about just what is so trivial to him. But to me, it was monumental. Sure, you know? of course. I'm not calling him up about this and that. I'm calling about, I want more posters. And he's like, all right, I'll get on it. <laughs> you know, I'm calling him to get them. But he took my calls. Yeah. It wasn't like you get the secretary, he'll call you back. But, you know, he had Nirvana. Yeah. He had guns. And they exploded, and we became last week's news. Let's start to, to, to wind down here. Over the years, you've had a, a lot of, uh, you know, you've done stuff with George. And I know even before the the COVID came, you guys are going to do a tour together, I believe it was, or yeah. do some stuff together. At this point in your career, you said earlier that you're too old to fight. Do you just agree to disagree? Do you have a begrudging respect for each other at this point? No, we actually get along pretty good, you know? Yeah. I mean, he sent me a picture of his new grandchild and I sent him pictures of my dogs and, <laughs> and he loves, he loves New Mexico. He loves Santa Fe. I, I, I still have my house in LA and, but I, I like it up here cause I'm on 13 acres. It's very secluded and I got a lot of privacy and got my studio here. And so, and he's like, he wants to move to Santa Fe. So we talk about that and I'm always looking for a house for him to buy and so we get along, you know, he talks about his grandkids and he sent me a picture when, when his daughter Mariah had her new child. And we're kind of like in that situation. That's you cool. Know? Yeah. Well, we're in our, we do. We're in our 60s, man. Yeah. You know, and so he's sending me baby pictures, you know, yeah. and I'm sending him pictures of the sunset. <laughs> you, know, like Bay, you know, and so we get along great. It was a good idea. Because as soon as we added Lynch Mob to my tour, it was going to be Lynch Mob, mostly in Lita Ford and Dawkins. And then George was going to come on stage, last four songs, and play. That's cool. And it was selling like hotcakes. Oh, Don and George are going to be on stage again. It's going to be either awesome or they're going to get in a fist fight. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it, it, you know, it was going great. And then COVID. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, well, then I had this thing going on in my hand. Like when I was playing guitar, I couldn't, I was having a hard time pushing the strings down. Like my fingers were getting weak. And I was like, why are my fingers getting so damn weak? And I went to a doctor and I had this big hollow spot in my thumb. And he said, ah, no big deal. You've been playing guitar 50 years. It's just carpal tunnel. You know, simple surgery will go in and fix your hands. And But let's get an MRI first, he said. And he gets the MRI and he said, ah, I got bad news. C6, 7, your spinal cord is completely compressed and it's life-threatening. Hmm. You know, if you fall down off your Harley or a ladder, you'll probably be paralyzed. So I said, okay, I'll just get my surgery, take off six months, recuperate, because they cut me like a pig. I'm cut all the way down from my base of my skull to the middle of my back. And uh, like I said, 13 screws and two steel plates. But then when I woke up in the hospital, I couldn't, my hands, my hands didn't work. Scared the shit out of me. Yeah, for sure. This one's working now. And I got all the dexterity. It's just weak. So I'm just doing easy five pounders. Mm-hmm. You watch TV. I just take the five pounder and just work the traps and work, just work it. Mm-hmm. Do five pounders and do 80 reps until it starts giving out and, but the right hand, I can't hold anything. So I'm just doing therapy. And the COVID hit, it's a bad thing. But because of my hand, maybe it's a good thing because I'm in the studio every day just writing lyrics. Mm-hmm. You know, I, we're, we're, we're recording over Skype. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way of the world now, man. <laughs> oh, it's so hilarious. I get my bass player on one screen and my drummer on this screen. And I kind of run through a mixing console and I start humming out a riff and John plays it and BJ starts playing a drum beat and Cliff, you know, Crisco want this kind of a beat or this kind of a drum beat. How about this bass line? And we're literally recording on zoom. <laughs> used to spend, crazy. used to spend $10,000 a week in a studio. Now you're recording on zoom. <laughs> I mean, it, it, we're, Oh man, the money we spent on those docking records, Jesus Christ. 
I spent 800,000 on my Don Dockin album. 800,000, nine months took us. I don't know what the fuck I was thinking. We just kept doing them. I just kept doing the songs over and over and over. And, and then Tom Zutok came in when the record was done. He didn't like it. He wanted me to change a bunch of stuff. And it just was like ka-ching, 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 ka-ching. Mm-hmm. And I blew a lot of money in that record. But, in, you know, in the 80s, we'd blow 250 or 300 on the record. And we'd spend that on a video. Jeez. Those videos used to cost 250 grand. Unbelievable, right? You know, they're using 35 millimeters. Sure, then. sure. And then, you know, I had, I had the big boys like Wayne Isham and all the Bon Jovi stuff. And and he's got 35 millimeters. Just developing the film was 10 grand. <laughs> and then when they, you know, now you can make videos on iPhones. Oh, yeah, for sure. We made one that's got 100,000 views already just off of iPhones filming, 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 edited together. There you go. Yeah. You just cut. Cost 100 bucks. You know, it's 780p and then you're, you're done. Last, last few questions for you, Don. I want to just briefly talk about the, the hearing aid sessions. Such a, a monumental, great moment in time. And I've talked to quite a few people about it, but I want to get your, your thoughts and memories on, on that. Well, you would think you put uh, 20-something rock stars in a room is going to be trouble. <laughs> but I think everybody had so much respect for Ronnie. Right. That, you know, he's Ronnie. He's kind of like the godfather. Mm-hmm. <laughs> This is a guy that's been making records since he was 14 years old. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And between the Deep Purple days and Rainbow and, you know, all that. So, and it was his song. and It was for a good cause. So, we all got along really great. It was a pretty easy, breezy session. I only think it took about three days. The picture you see in the back of the album, like, we just all got together on the last day. and But they were bringing us in about, you know, eight of us at a time. And I remember I thought... Next time you look at the record, you'll have a laugh because everybody is wearing black leather jackets, <laughs> of course, and their motorcycle boots and their leather pants. And, you know, everybody's rocked out. And I knew it was going to be that way. So I, I wore a white pinstripe suit. <laughs> <laughs> and you see me in the album, like, when I'm singing, I'm wearing a white pinstripe, total, like, GQ suit. It's even in the movie. Because Ronnie hits the talk back and he goes, hey, Don. I go, what's up? He goes, GQ called. <laughs> <laughs> but Ronnie was just such a great guy. And, and you know, we did the last line tour, which was the first kind of a tour that, you know, after Ben Halen was so over the top with 20 marshals in the air and, you know, the production. And then you got uh, Motley hadn't done the roller coaster drums yet, I don't think. So Ronnie went out there with two dragons, or no, phoenixes. <laughs> they were giant phoenixes that shot flames and laser beams. And Ronnie picked up a sword. He battled the dragons. And, and it was a huge production. And uh, except we'd, it'd be funny because they'd malfunction and the lasers would be shooting the wrong direction. <laughs> and, and it kind of reminded me of the Blue Oyster Cult tour when we – we started the Bloister Cult Tour. They had the whole Godzilla behind them. Yeah. It was about 10 feet high. But then something was going wonky, so they cut off the bottom of them. <laughs> and it was about 10 feet high. And by the end of the tour, it was just his head. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, right? And a guy would go in there in back of the head, and he'd manipulate these levers and stuff to make his uh, eyes go up and down, his mouth open, and his ears move, and then he'd shoot out a flame out of the, the the Godzilla's mouth. and But I had to laugh because that dragon just got smaller and smaller, <laughs> yeah. smaller. But we all did the big production, and I realize now it's not about production. It's about the songs. Mm-hmm. Of course. I understand. The kid, even Kiss gets it. Yeah. It was the way it was back then, though, you know? More bombastic, the better. Yeah, you got Ted. You know, I've toured with Ted, uh, Ted Nugent a lot. Ted's a really good friend. I love Ted. We, we get along famously, and and I and I I said I said so no more loincloth for you swinging across <laughs> the stage like Tarzan, right? And he's like, not with my knees. <laughs> His knees are gone. We're all when now we get together, you know. I play with ten years. We're just talking about our aches and pains, <laughs> right? Like Don, how's your back? Eh. How's your hand? So so. How are your knees? Eh. <laughs> We're just talking about our, our moans and groans, right. about how we beat ourselves up. For 50 years, remember Ted used to 
jump up a stack of marshals with his guitar on and land on the stage. And man, that took its toll on his knees. Oh, yeah. I mean, you've got to have some aches and pains for wrestling. Absolutely. Even from being on stage, too. Like, that stage is very unforgiving, you know? Yeah, it's hard as a rock. And yeah. It's not padded. And <laughs> you're running back and forth. And it's like, you know, after this show, you feel it. Mm-hmm. And you know the fans don't give a shit if you're not feeling good. You got the flu. Doesn't matter. You better go out there and give it 100% or don't go on stage. That's right. That's right. Last question for you, Don. Um, what are your favorite songs to sing these days? What songs do you get the best reactions from the crowd? Well, I think still the hits, you know, like in, in My Dreams, Into the Fire, It's Not Love, Just Got Lucky. The, the fans sing along. They know the lyrics. My personal favorites I like to do live are what I call the deep tracks. We do one song called uh, Too High to Fly. That was that great, was too. On, yeah. Yeah, it was on the Don Dawkins album. It's kind of a trippy, hippie song. And then Reb's been filling in for John because John didn't want to fly and mm-hmm, stuff because mm-hmm. uh, his dad's uh, elderly and he's the primary caregiver. He goes, I can't take a chance giving him COVID. Gotcha. So Reb Beach is not touring with Whitesnake right now. He was in Dawkins for a couple of years. So Reb came out and played with us. And so we do a couple of songs on the album, Erase the Slate, that Reb wrote. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then we do, you know, we do some dark tracks like Don't Close Your Eyes. We do Tooth and Nail. And, but when somebody says, what's your favorite song? It's kind of like a father that has eight kids. <laughs> yeah. And he won't say, what's your favorite kid? <laughs> we can't really answer it, right? Right, 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 right. What's your favorite? You like the girls better or the boys? <laughs> you know? So when it comes to favorite songs, not to sound pretentious, I'm just grateful that we're allowed to tour the year 2020 right right when i'm like i didn't think this would happen when breaking the chains came out mm-hmm. when i'm playing the star club on the reaper bond and you know for 50 people i mean who's to yeah you know, we go from here to there and then we went back down in the 90s and now you know with lynch on board and stuff it would have been a great summer for us mm-hmm. we had 50 shows booked a lot of shows yeah a lot of money gone so it looks like next year it's going to be a lot of touring going on <laughs> next year is going to be the tour uh year of, of in history for sure yeah i'm glad you're doing some shows yeah i'm That's excited good. man like you said it's a little bit uh not intimidating but i'm just i just want to go and do it like i read your on your uh on your uh, skype thing you took six flights and two shows and nobody got sick and wear your mask and have some fun you know that's what i'm looking forward to and that's really what it was. You know, I was w- more worried about the flights than the audience. Yeah, sure, sure. But everyone's got a mask on. I had to go to six different airports. I didn't see one person in the airport that didn't have a mask on. And they tell you now on the plane, they say, because of the First Amendment, they say, if you choose not to wear a mask, you can do that. But they say, but American Airlines may not allow you to fly in our mm-hmm. airline. Which is fair. Not fair. Yeah. It is. But there are those idiots out there go, I don't need no stinking mess. <laughs> Next week he's got COVID. Yeah. Or gives it to somebody else. Gives it to somebody else. Don, thank you so much, man. It's, it's great, nice talking. It's to great you. talking to you. Hopefully I'll get to see you on the road somewhere down the line. Yeah, we're going to be out somewhere. Yeah. Just get, this is like the apocalyptic year. It's such a up year, man. That's, that's for got, sure. We got an election coming up. Yeah. <laughs> Four months. We got people catching some crazy disease the economy's all over the map it's like wow my hands jacked up i go it's been a strange year so we can only say prayers and hope for better days absolutely man thank you so much dude take care boss you too man talk to you soon bye-bye 